Welcome to the No Illusions podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. It's the 19th of May 2011. Just back from a wonderful week in Kuala Lumpur, met a lot of new friends, uh, got a lot of great ideas at the New Media Asia conference that uh, I was invited to speak at. Had a lot of fun. Thank you to Colin and Prabhu and the people that invited me over there. Let's get stuck into some news stories for today. Um, primarily, I'm going to be talking a little bit later on about a journalist by the name of Matt Taibbi, T-A-I-B-B-I, and the uh, book of his that I've been reading recently called Griftopia. But first of all, a couple of interesting stories that have taken my interest over the last few days. There's a great story in uh, Fast Company called How Viral PDFs of a Naughty Bedtime Book Exploded the Old Publishing Model. I'm not sure if you heard, heard about this, but there's a guy called Adam Mansbach, and he did a Facebook post when he was trying to put his two-year-old daughter to sleep back in June, and the... Uh, Facebook post said, look out for my forthcoming children's book, Go the Fuck to Sleep. And uh, this was so popular with people on Facebook, I think he got a lot of crap for it as well, but he decided to make it into a real children's book. And uh, there's a couple of stories here. Number one is that it's a beautiful book uh, done with, you know, as you'd expect, big format, lots of large, pretty pictures um, that the kiddies would like, but it's a children's book for adults. Uh, for example, there's a section here that says, The eagles who soar through the sky are at rest, and the creatures who crawl, run, and creep. I know you're not thirsty. That's bullshit. Stop lying. Lie the fuck down, my darling, and sleep. Uh, any of you that have ever had little kids that you're trying to get to sleep, you know that story. But um, the more interesting, just in the fact than the fact that it's a funny book, is how it's been marketed. Now, uh, it hasn't even come out yet, not due out for a month, but it's already uh, uh, snagged a film option deal with Fox 2000 and just reached the pinnacle of the online uh, publishing e-commerce world in that it's the number one spot on Amazon.com a month before its release. Now, uh, this article in uh, Fast Company, as I said, asks, well, how can this be? It says the answer appears to be piracy. There are many reasons why Go the Fuck to Sleep deserves to be a bestseller and probably would have attained that status anyway. It's hilarious. It's honest. Humor books tend to do well in general, as do parenting books, as do short books. Not to mention it's the perfect, ironic, light-hearted shower gift. Parental exhaustion is by no means an emotion exclusive to Mansbach. But all those factors don't seem to be sufficient to explain why this book has reached the heights that it has as soon as it has. What seems to set this book apart, hypothesizes the Bay Citizen, there's a newspaper that talked about it, I think, um, is the pirated PDF copy of the book that has gone absolutely viral. Piracy, any publisher will tell you, is bad. It's the scourge of the music industry. With the rise of e-reading, booksellers now fear it to a similar degree. And... Um, uh, yeah, the publisher of the book told this uh, Bay Citizen, the newspaper, as the publisher of this book, our responsibility is to tackle instances of piracy when we become aware of them. That's just doing a service to our authors, ourselves, booksellers, distributors, to everyone involved in the successful making and promotion of a book. 
But in this particular case, fighting piracy may not be doing a service to the book. Piracy, it seems, is what has driven the book's real-world money-making flying-off-the-shelf success. The bootleg copy hasn't replaced the actual artifact. It has only served as a sort of free advertising. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the, the actual publisher, uh, the publicity director of McSweeney's, the publishing group, Juliet Littman, said, I'm not sure we think it's a bad thing. Uh, so, um, Neil Gaiman, or Neil Gaiman, sorry, I know he pronounces his name, uh, has gone on record, uh, says essentially supporting the piracy of his own work as a way of building a fan base. Um, I remember seeing Cory Doctorow, uh, one of the chief bloggers at Boing Boing and noted, uh, science fiction author and also noted, uh, opponent of, um, you know, digital fingerprinting. Uh, I saw him speak in Melbourne uh, three, four, five years ago, probably. And he actually tackled this subject at the time and said, you know what the greatest challenge to an author is? It isn't privacy. It's anonymity. And, you know, he kind of uh, makes a lot of his books available when he publishes them as a free download. But people can also go and buy them. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you guys. I'm not sure if you have downloaded books for free. I have. And then, um, you know read uh, a few pages or a chapter or two and decided that I actually wanted to go and buy the real book. And there's a number of reasons for that. Often the pirated copies of books where they've been scanned using an OCR scanner have a lot of spelling mistakes or formatting errors. And whilst you can read them, it becomes a little bit bothersome when you have to translate a couple of words per sentence that just don't, uh, you know, where there's been spelling mistakes. But you get the gist of the book. You know, there's a lot of books that I've bought over the years. Uh, I'm talking about hard copy books before the iPad, where, um, you know, I'd read the first paragraph and go, don't like it. You know, uh, nonfiction books and fiction books, I'd read and just not get into the story or not get into the author's style. And it's a waste of 30 bucks. With making, uh, with pirated copies of ebooks out there, you can read it, decide if you like it, and then go buy it. Now, not everybody's going to buy every book that they download, but I think increasingly a lot will. But I think it gets back to the same problem that the music business has, the movie business, the television business. I've been saying this for years. They need to stop thinking of the content as the product. You need to start building into the content things that you can't pirate. Now, what kind of things are those? It's relationships. Relationships with the author, relationships with the musician, relationships with the film studio, relationships with the television studio, or with the actors, or with the writers, or with the producers. You know, if you read a book, and you're a fan of an author, or you're a fan of a TV show, or of a musician, how cool would it be that once uh, a month, or once a year, you got to participate in a customer-only dialogue with that person. I remember this first struck me, oh, have to be 10 years ago now, maybe even more. I think it was like late 90s when MSN launched their uh, IM channel at the time, their instant messaging channel. And as part of the launch, they got Leonard Cohen to come on and do like a live chat with the audience. And it lasted about half an hour or an hour. And um, I didn't ask any questions, but I got to sit on the line uh, on the instant messaging channel and watch people ask Leonard Cohen questions and have him respond. Now, I'm a huge Leonard Cohen fan, and I thought that was so cool that you could 
just you know have a unscripted, unstructured conversation with uh, you know a musician that you admire, an artist that you admire, and get a little bit of an insight into their their process and and you know their creativity in their life. And I can easily name, you know, probably 20 musicians, not to mention actors and writers and painters and artists that I would do the same thing for. And I would probably even pay for access to that. Now, you can't pirate that opportunity. And there's lots of income opportunities once they build the fan base. So here's the key. If you give the product away or at least make it cheap enough that more people can afford it, if a book was... 99 cents an ebook rather than 14.99 I would be more likely to take a chance in buying the real thing if I don't like it I've only lost a buck but then if I find an author that I do like and then there's an opportunity to participate in conversations with that person but I need to uh, you know sign up and pay you know 20 bucks a year to be able to participate in a couple of uh, you know online chats and conversations with that person, I'd probably flip over the money because it's an experience and you cannot pirate experiences. So anyway, interesting story. Have a look at the link on the uh, website or just Google uh, the name of the author or just Google go, to, go the fuck to sleep, I guess you'll find it. The author's name is Adam Mansback and you'll find the original story. I don't need to give you links. You know how to use Google. Another story today that uh, took my attention, um, it's about uh, Obama giving up on trying to create peace between Israel and Palestine. This is in Al Jazeera. The title is Obama Gives Up, AIPAC Wins, A-I-P-A-C. The article reads, on the surface, it appears that President Obama has given up on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, and frankly, given the evidence, it's difficult imagining that there's something different beneath the surface. To wit, Special Envoy George Mitchell resigned, clearly angry at the lack of support his peace efforts received from the White House, and his resignation letter was about as curt and cold as any in recent memory. The announcement of his resignation followed reports that the President's Thursday speech on the Middle East will, amazingly, say virtually nothing about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. A day after Mitchell's resignation came news that the president had decided he will speak at this month's APAC conference, the traditional setting for pandering to the Israeli government and, more significantly, to Israel-centred political donors. Now, um, if you recall when Obama first was forming his administration, he appointed George George Mitchell to be his uh, special envoy to the whole Israeli-Palestinian situation. And I remember him singing this guy's praises quite highly and talking about how seriously he wanted to take the peace process. But as with all of the other promises that Obama made during his presidential election campaign, this one too has been broken. Um, you know, it just seems to be the story with this guy that he is absolutely determined to, you know, leave no significant changes. And we'll talk about healthcare uh, in a bit. But um, I, you know, I, I for one am not surprised by this. Now, I'm interested to know what uh, American Democrat voters think. I speak to quite a few from time to time, and they seem to range from being completely bitterly disappointed in what a letdown Obama has been. Uh, And on the other scale, there are the defenders, the uh, apologists for Obama. 
One of the things that continually frustrates me in the left media in the US and shows that I really admire The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, uh, Real Time with Bill Maher, is they really don't give Obama the kind of shellacking that he deserves. They poke fun at him, but they kind of say, well, you know, he's just too nice a guy. He's just trying to be too friendly or achieve some sort of bipartisan situation with the Republicans. I genuinely don't believe that's the case at all. I believe that his whole election campaign was uh, Hollywood. It was uh, crafted by very, very clever people to pull the wool over the eyes of the Democratic voters and just end up with another piece of shit in the White House. Uh, He's uh, handsome, he's eloquent, he's obviously very intelligent, but at the end of the day, he still obeys his corporate masters. And I kind of suspected this was going to happen during the election campaign. If you go back and have a look at some of my podcasts from 2007, you'll see that I called this back then because I looked at the list of his major political campaign donors and number two on the list was Goldman Sachs. Now, if Goldman Sachs, which is the most evil corporation on the planet, and we'll talk a bit more about them when we get to the Matt Taibbi section, if Goldman Sachs thinks you're a safe enough bet as a presidential candidate to throw a lot of money at your campaign, then you know that the guy smells bad. And it shouldn't be no surprise to anyone that he ends up just being another elitist uh, American piece of shit looking after the uh, elite's interests. And their interests are in you know, continuing um, to destabilize the Middle East uh, so they can, uh, you know keep better access to the oil supply over there. And again, we'll talk more about oil when we get to the Taibi section. He's got some really interesting insights in his book, Griftopia, on the petrol price hike uh, that we saw a couple of years ago and that we're sort of seeing again now. Before that, interesting story on uh, bushdolo4.com called Top U.S. Government Insider says Bin Laden died in 2001 and 9-11's a false flag. Now, before you start saying, uh, uh, by the way, I think this website got it from prisonplanet.com, so I should give uh, due credit there. This uh, article's a couple of weeks old, though. Now, before you start saying, oh, yes, crazy conspiracy theories, listen who it's coming from. Top U.S. government insider Dr. Steve R. Pizanik, a man who held numerous different influential positions under three different presidents and still works with the Defense Department, Shockingly told the Alex Jones show that Osama bin Laden died in 2001 and that he was prepared to testify in front of a grand jury how a top general told him directly that 9-11 was a false flag inside job. Pizanik cannot be dismissed as a conspiracy theorist. He served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State under three administrations, Nixon, Ford and Carter, while also working under Reagan and Bush Sr. and still works as a consultant for the Department of Defense. A former U.S. Navy captain, Pizanik achieved two prestigious Harry C. Solomon Awards at the Harvard Medical School as he simultaneously completed a PhD at MIT. I jumped onto his Wikipedia profile and looked this guy up. He's actually a bit of a, a fiction writer, does like thriller fiction. In fact, it says here somewhere later on, the character of Jack Ryan, who appears in many Tom Clancy novels and was also played by Harrison Ford in the popular 1992 movie Patriot Games, is based on Steve Pizanik. And I think he collaborated with Clancy on some of those novels. Now, and he's, I think uh, he went to Harvard Medical School, did a degree in psychiatry. I think his PhD is in psychiatry. 
Uh, let me read on. Back in 2002, over nine years ago, Pizanik told the Alex Jones Show that Bin Laden had already been dead for months and that the government was waiting for the most politically expedient time to roll out his corpse. Pizanik would be in a position to know, having personally met Bin Laden and worked with him during the proxy war against the Soviets in Afghanistan back in the early 80s. Pizanik said that Osama Bin Laden died in 2001, not because special forces had killed him, but because as a physician I had known that the CIA physicians had treated him, and it was on the intelligence roster that he had Marfan syndrome, adding that the US government knew Bin Laden was dead before they invaded Afghanistan. Marfan syndrome is a degenerative genetic disease for which there's no permanent cure. The illness severely shortens the lifespan of the sufferer. He died of Marfan syndrome. Bush Jr. knew about it. The intelligence community knew about it, said Pizanik, noting how CIA physicians had visited Bin Laden in July 2001 at the American Hospital in Dubai. Not the first time that I've heard that. He was already very sick from Marfan syndrome and he was already dying, so nobody had to kill him, added Pizanik, stating that Bin Laden died shortly after 9-11 in his Tora Bora cave complex. Did the intelligence community or the CIA doctor up this situation? The answer is yes, categorically yes, said Pizanik. This whole scenario where you see a bunch of people sitting there looking at a screen and they look as if they're intense, that's nonsense, referring to the images released by the White House which claim to show Biden, Obama and Hillary Clinton watching the operation to kill bin Laden live on a television screen. Now, I tweeted this story and a couple of people accused me of being a wacko conspiracy theorist or this guy being a wacko conspiracy theorist. But, um, you know, my position on this whole Bin Laden affair is uh, the same as my position on pretty much any other major news that comes out of the White House or the Pentagon. It's that I don't believe a single word they say unless it's backed up by significant amounts of evidence. Why? Because they have a long, 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 long proven track record of lying through their fucking ass. And don't believe me, get a book called Legacy of Ashes by Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times journalist Tim Weiner, W-E-I-N-E-R, where he uh, you know, absolutely spells out the entire 60-year history of the CIA and all of the bullshit lying campaigns that they have done, lying to the American public as well as the, the global public, uh, at times supported by the White House, at times without the White House even knowing it was going on and pissing off a variety of presidents, including Kennedy, Jimmy Carter, Eisenhower, I think, goes back that far. Um, but this is their standard MO. And we also know that the White House has continually lied. You know, we were told that Saddam had WMD, which was you know completely bullshit and fabricated. Um, and that's just one example. So if you read the history of the CIA and the White House and their absolute... And, and by the way, Tim Weiner's book is fascinating because every source in the book is on record. There's no anonymous sources. And they're all uh, former directors of the CIA or former top CIA agents. And uh, all of, you know, quite a lot of the um, materials that he points to is stuff that's been released under the Freedom of Information Act. Because what they do is they lie about the shit at the time lock up all of the uh, paperwork and evidence, the records, under uh, you know secrecy laws for, for decades, and then they get released. And by the time they come out, no one really gives a shit. You know, it's all, every, everyone's moved on, no one really cares. And if anyone does care, they can sort of blame it on, well, yes, the, those were the bad times, bad administrations. Uh, you know, we're not like that anymore. We've turned a new leaf. Well, prove it. 
So whenever you see the CIA doing stuff or the White House or the Pentagon doing stuff or suggesting stuff that just seems a little bit kind of convenient or dodgy, I think a rational response is to say, show us the evidence. doesn't mean you're a conspiracy theorist. It just means that, like, put it this way. If you had a friend who you knew had been lying to you constantly, year after year after year, and then they come and they tell you some big story about catching a big fish, you're going to be skeptical. It's not, it doesn't make you a conspiracy theorist to be skeptical. When this person is a congenital liar, it, it makes you rational to be suspicious of anything they tell you. The same is true with governments. Same is true with uh, government agencies like the CIA. That doesn't make you a conspiracy theorist, friends. That just makes you rational and sensible. From JJ Projects, my friend's uh, excellent blog, The Nine Billion, that's the number nine, billion.com. Interesting story. He posted uh, back in March, but I'm going to just read it again because it just came up in Twitter the other day. You know, there's still people talking about... uh, the, the fallout at the Fukushima nuclear plant in Japan. And don't get me wrong, we should always be absolutely concerned about any large-scale, or even small-scale for that matter, nuclear accidents. But we need to keep it in perspective, and the media doesn't do a very good job of that. Um, and he has a great chart here that he may have uh, borrowed, I think, from the, the one and only Seth Godin. But it basically points out that for every person killed by nuclear power generation, including accidents, 4,000 die from coal. And this is adjusted for how much power is produced by each method of power generation. Um, He also points out that if we were to take into account such things as deaths from environmental impacts yet unmeasured due to climate change caused by fossil fuel emissions, for example, the chart would skew even more. So as JJ says, the post actually focuses on the triumph of coal marketing. And we shouldn't be surprised um, that these figures are the way they are, that coal is responsible for thousands and thousands and thousands of times the deaths of nuclear. But the fact that the coal marketing industry is so very, very good at spinning the media, spinning the, the message, the narrative, that people don't really know about the the differences and everyone gets very concerned about nuclear and the accidents and that sort of stuff. But you hear, you know, very little talk, at least at the same level of hysteria, about the damage being done every day by the fossil fuel industry. I know that uh, Rod Adams, who does the Atomic Show on the Podcast Network, and if you haven't listened to that and you're interested in these issues, you should. Um, Rod's been telling me for years that even organizations like Greenpeace get a lot of their funding from big oil and coal giants. And you have to wonder, like Obama and Goldman Sachs, you have to wonder how much that taints their messaging. All right, so let's get on to Matt Taibbi. As I said at the beginning of the show, Matt Taibbi, T-A-I-B-B-I, Google him, probably for my money right now, the best journalist working in the United States. He's been writing for a couple of years for Rolling Stone magazine, and he tends to look at politics and financial services market. Young guy, I think he's only like uh, in his mid-30s, but he's an absolute excellent uh, journalist. Now, you may have heard of him before. He's the guy that uh, called Goldman Sachs the giant vampire squid. Let me see if I can just uh, bring up my notes. 
going to look up my uh, Amazon Kindle bookmarks because I can't cut and paste straight from my Kindle into Evernote, which pisses me off no end. You know, I really like to be able to make notes and you can make notes in your Kindle app, but you can't cut and paste it into anywhere else. Um, let's see where this quote is uh, about Goldman Sachs. Here we go. <laughs> The first thing you need to know about Goldman Sachs is that it's everywhere. The world's most powerful investment bank is a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. In fact, the history of the recent financial crisis, which doubles as a history of the rapid decline and fall of the suddenly swindled dry American empire, reads like a who's who of Goldman Sachs graduates. Get onto that uh, a bit more later on, but this is the sort of stuff that he writes about. It's, it's, it's a fun style of writing, but he's absolutely aggressive in taking on uh, Goldman Sachs, the financial services sector, and also the political leadership of the United States. And, I, and is probably the most honest uh, journalist uh, in this sphere that I have read to date, particularly an American journalist. Um, Basically, the setup for his book, Griftopia, it explains the entire global financial crisis, what led to it over decades, and um, all the intricacies of you know exactly what happened and exactly how the bailout happened. And if that sounds boring to you, uh, it's not. You need to read this book, Griftopia, G-R-I-F-T-O-P-I-A, Bubble Machines, Vampire Squids, and the Long Con That Is Breaking America. And it's called Griftopia because Taibbi believes that Wall Street is basically just a big casino run by grifters that are just trying to scam money out of hardworking Americans, basically trying to empty the vaults as much as they can into their own personal bank accounts. And um, here's some just choice quotes I'm going to read from this book that uh, hopefully just to inspire you to get out and buy it and read it as soon as possible because it is absolutely excellent. I can't speak highly enough of it. I, you know, it's one of those books that if I really highlighted, highlighted every passage that I want to highlight, the whole book would just be highlighted. But here's a few choice passages. He says, here's the big difference between America and the third world. In America, our leaders put on a hell of a show for us voters. He's talking about presidential elections. While in the third world, the bulk of the population gets squat. In the third world, most people know where they stand and don't have any illusions about it. But mostly, your third world schmuck gets the shaft. He gets to live in dusty, unpaved dumps, eat expired food, scratch and claw his way to an old enough age to reproduce, and then die unnecessarily of industrial accidents, malnutrition, or some long-forgotten disease of antiquity. We get a beautifully choreographed 18-month entertainment put on once every four years, a beast called the presidential election that engrosses the population to the point of obsession. But then he goes on to say, but none of it really matters to us. The presidential election is a drama that we Americans have learned to wholly consume as entertainment, divorced completely from any expectations about concrete changes in our own lives. For the vast majority of people who follow national elections in this country, the payoff they're looking for when they campaign for this or that political figure is that warm and fuzzy feeling you get when the home team wins the big game, or more important, when a hated rival loses. Their stake in the electoral game isn't a citizen's interest, but a rooting interest. What voters don't realise or don't want to realise is that the dream, uh, the dream he's talking about here is, you know, the dream of a better, fairer, prosperous America. The dream was abandoned long ago by this country's leaders, who know the more prosaic reality and are looking beyond the fantasy into the future 
at an America plummeted into third world status. These leaders are like the drug lords who ruled America's ghettos in the crack age, men and some women, interested in just two things, staying in power and hoovering up enough of what's left of the cash on their blocks to drive around in an Escalade or a 633i for however long they have left. Our leaders know we're turning into a giant ghetto, and they're taking every last hubcap they can get their hands on before the rest of us wake up and realize what's happened. In the new American ghetto, the nightmare engine is bubble economics, a kind of high-tech casino scam that kills neighborhoods just like dope does, only the product is credit, not crack or heroin. It concentrates the money of the population in just a few hands with brutal efficiency, just like narco business, and just as in narco business, the product itself, debt, steadily demoralizes the customer to the point where he's unable to prevent himself from being continually dominated. The new America is fast becoming a vast ghetto in which all of us, conservatives and progressives, are being bled dry by a relatively tiny oligarchy of extremely clever financial criminals and their castrato henchmen in government, whose main job is to be good actors on TV and put on a good show. Now, the first guy that he tackles in the book is Alan Greenspan. Now, for those of you who don't take an interest in the financial markets, you've probably even heard of Alan Greenspan, but he he basically ran the uh, Fed in the US, the Federal Reserve, for nigh on 20 years. And systematically, over that uh, those decades, helped... And, and drove the deregulation of the financial services sector in the US. Now, basically, coming out of the Great Depression in you know, the early 30s, there were a system of regulations put into place to tr- try and prevent that from ever happening again. And basically, they were there to stop bankers, investment bankers, retail bankers, and the insurance industry from becoming so incredibly greedy that they could collapse the economy, which is basically what happened in the the great crash of 1929. But what, and you know, and that, and that kind of worked for the next uh, 40, 50 years. But what happened in the 80s under Reagan and onwards through Clinton, who was one of the worst, on through Bush one and is uh, sorry Bush two and is you know uh, now happening still through Obama, is these regulations were eliminated. And what that meant was these investment banks, insurance companies, could go absolutely nuts making insane profits at the expense of the financial stability of the country. Um, And now, uh, you know, he he talks obviously a lot about Goldman Sachs. He really believes that Goldman Sachs are one of the main villains in this story. And um, just to give you a bit of an idea about how it works... I think I've talked about this on the show before, but for people who haven't heard all those shows, if you go through and look at the people who tend to run the uh, Treasury under the under the White House in, in successive governments going back for the last sort of, I don't know, 15-odd years, they tend to be ex-Goldman Sachs executives. So what happens is, uh, you know, President X gets into the White House and he appoints a Goldman Sachs senior vice president or CEO or CFO to run, you know, the, the the financial management of the White House. And the excuse is always, well, Goldman Sachs are really clever. They're really good at what they're doing. They know their shit. What that person does, though, while they're in the White House is lots of special deals that make it easier for Goldman Sachs to make insane profits. Then when uh, he's done a few years in the job, 
he resigns or his president, you know, his party loses the vote and he's out of job. What does he do? He goes back to Goldman Sachs. The new president is uh, voted in. What does he do? Points another guy from Goldman Sachs to come in and run the business, run the treasury. And it's this revolving door. Here's just some of the people that are ex-Goldman Sachs. It's quite insane. Um, I'll, I'll just read some more quotes here. It's, it's fantastic. Um, this is, again, from Taibi. The history of Goldman, a company that has developed a reputation as the smartest and nimblest of corporate enterprises, is the story of the great lie at the center of our political and economic life. Goldman is not a company of geniuses. It's a company of criminals. And far from being the best fruit of a democratic capitalistic society, it's the apotheosis of the grifter era, a parasitic enterprise that has attached itself to the American government and taxpayer and shamelessly engorged itself on us all. Now, here's some of the ex-Goldman alum. Um, The heads of the Canadian and Italian national banks are Goldman, as is the head of the World Bank, the head of the New York Stock Exchange, the current chief of staff of the Treasury, the last two heads of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, which incidentally is now in charge of regulating Goldman, and on and on. So they basically have people anywhere. And he talks about, uh, oh, by the way, uh, former eBay CEO Meg Whitman, she was ex-Goldman Sachs. Uh, Jim Cramer, the guy who does that crazy show on Fox, and one of the guys that was you know, helping build the bubble of the American economy just before it crashed, former Goldman guy. Um, Just everywhere you look, and both sides of the political spectrum, there's these ex-Goldman Sachs people that uh, are helping contribute to this bubble thinking. And he goes back, you know, through the uh, dot-com bubble, which was in a very large part engineered by Goldman Sachs. They did the uh, Yahoo IPO in 1996, uh, made so much bank out of that that they then started just basically IPOing anything that moved. But the big, the biggest crime isn't just that they've made a lot of money, it's that they're absolutely criminal in the way that they do it. And the, the same uh, modus operandi, the same pattern that they developed during the dot-com boom back in the late 90s they continued through the 2000s with the whole mortgage-backed securities crisis. And the, this is basically where they have uh, shitty investments that they know are shit, but they go and tell the market that it's great. It's basically the analogy that I've, I've seen Taby and a few other people use. It's like a used car salesman that's got a complete lemon of a car, but tells his customers that it's the greatest car of, of all time, and if you don't buy it now, you're going to miss out and, uh, you know, basically fleeces them. Now, you might say, well, you know, buyer beware. And that's fine, but we have rules and laws that we're supposed to in the financial services industry where you have to be, uh, you have to disclose the information that you know about the financial products that you're selling so people can make an educated decision because these are increasingly complex products. And, you know, very, very few people understand how they work. And so if you're going out there and you're scamming people, you're saying it's a great product when you know it's not, and and they have there's evidence now coming out from several inquiries that, you know, Goldman absolutely knew from their internal emails that these products that they were selling were bullshit. Uh, they weren't just uh, selling bullshit products, by the way. They were hedging 
their investment. So they were actually, um, without wanting to get into too much financial jargon, they were buying uh, shorts on the products that they were selling. So basically in financial terms, they were buying insurance that the products that they were selling and telling everybody were great were actually going to fail. So even when the products failed, Goldman was still able to make out like bandits. And that's one of the reasons why AIG uh, collapsed as an organization because Goldman had not only sold them a bunch of shit, but had also taken out insurance with them that when these shit products failed, AIG had to pay Goldman. It's, it's absolutely uh, devious. Um, not just Taibi who's saying this stuff too. There's a great article that I read today in Forbes magazine, or Forbes.com, I guess I should say, entitled, It's Getting Harder to Defend Goldman Sachs. Now, when the article actually comes up on my browser, I'll tell you who it's by. But, um, da, 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 just sing a little song while I'm waiting. Uh, la, da, 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 da. Oh, they're trying to show me an ad for Microsoft Office 365, whatever the fuck that is. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, um, here we go. By Robert A. Green, CPA. Uh, He says, after reading Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World by William D. Cohen, I can no longer defend Goldman Sachs and the status quo on Wall Street. As Congress and the media were debating the controversial and populist-tinged Dodd-Frank financial regulation bill, my first inclination was to defend Wall Street and traders overall. I didn't like the Dodd-Frank's Volcker rule, which divests proprietary trading and alternative investments, hedge funds and private equity from Wall Street commercial banks. I believe the bill was similar to reinstating the Glass-Steagall Act, separating investment banking and trading from commercial banking. Goes on to say, what's clear to me now, oh, he says here, the um, this Chinese wall is the biggest myth and lie on Wall Street, the Chinese wall between their commercial and their investment divisions. What's clear to me now after learning more is that Wall Street embraced and abused conflicts of interest for its own private good directly at the great expense of its clients and the public. Goldman should be tarred and feathered over the 2008 meltdown. Like others on Wall Street, Goldman had an active mortgage department designing, packaging, securitizing, promoting, and selling mortgage-backed securities and related synthetic derivatives. Goldman's trading desk conceived, promoted, and sold various protection strategies as market maker, agent, and principal. As the housing bubble got close to bursting, Goldman became enlightened sooner than other banks, partly from witnessing the big short strategies of its infamous head fund client, John Paulson. The entire firm came around to believing the great mortgage bubble was a house of cards ready to collapse, based on delinquencies, no-doc loans, fraud and more. This is where Goldman made a serious error in judgment. Goldman had two choices, discontinue the sale of junk mortgage securities and alerting the government, media, public, their clients and investors, or keep it a secret, sell off junk bond mortgage, sorry, junk mortgage securities to investors, profit from the inevitable bursting of the bubble, and steal an even front-run part of Paulson's trade, uh, which is basically what they ended up doing. Um, so read this article. Uh, he finishes by saying, kudos to Matt Taibbi for leading the charge against Goldman Sachs in his articles in Rolling Stone and as a guest on several TV shows. He might prod the government to do the right thing against Goldman. Of course, if Washington takes a heavy hand with Goldman, can we all afford it? Or, with a few major financial institutions still standing after the meltdown, would a takedown of Goldman jeopardise the entire banking system? 
And, you know, this is going to be one of the issues, I'm sure, that plays into what happens next. First of all, you have Goldman, you know, pretty much owns the White House and, you know, has lots of interrelated relationships with most of the media. They're the bankers or investors for, you know, many of the large media barons and media companies. So, you know, they've got a lot of sway over general perception. But the, the other side of the story is that, you know, this whole too big to fail uh, example will be used again. The great hypocr- hypocrisy of American capitalism. You know, America likes to run around the world forcing third world countries into joining the World Bank and the, IM, uh, the IMF and forcing capitalism on them and singing the praises of capitalism. And one of the general tenets of capitalism is that if you run a bad business and you make bad decisions, then your business will fail. And, it'll, you know, there's a sort of a basic Darwinism there that businesses that are run well and are run honestly and have ethics and integrity and sell a good product for a good price and provide a good service will thrive and prosper. Now, this is, this is you know, a complete bullshit lie that's been sold to us for decades. Uh, while, you know, greedy, incredibly rich individuals and, and corporations basically buy the government from out underneath us, telling us, oh, capitalism is wonderful and it's fair. At the same time, they're basically buying influence in the government to push through regulations that help them make even more money at the expense of the rest of the population. But of course, then, when they do, uh, as has happened in the last couple of years, yet again, uh, completely fuck up and lose gazillions of dollars, instead of going out of business, they get the government to come and bail them out with taxpayer money with this excuse that too big to fail. If they fail, it'll bring the whole economy down. And of course, if the whole economy did come down, it would show up the great lie of capitalism, which is that it's all a fraud. It isn't sustainable. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of certain aspects of capitalism in innovation and entrepreneurship, but we have to always remember that there are a percentage of people in any society that are evil, greedy fucks. And... You know, when those people get enough money that they can buy politicians and buy the media, you end up with a completely fucked up society. And that's what's happened in the US. And, you know, my concern is that it's also happening increasingly in Australia. We, we need to put a cap on greed. I mean, do we really need CEOs earning $20 million a year? Really, does anyone really need that amount of money? Uh, it's just absolutely insane when we have people that are starving, people that don't have enough health care, people that are working two, three jobs just to put food in their children's mouths, that we have other people that are making that amount of money. And, you know, they're, they're not that smart. They don't work hard. They basically sit around in meetings all day and just uh, spend other people's money. They've managed in many cases to you know, bullshit their way into these positions. I've met lots of senior executives and CEOs of the biggest Australian companies over the last 20 years through my different jobs. And very, very, very few of them impressed me one iota. You know, I found, in fact, quite the contrary. Most of them just seem to be kind of dumb and stupid and full of their own bullshit. So, oh, just hit the microphone. Sorry about that. Um... Anyway, that's pretty much the show. Uh, go and get Matt Taibbi's book, Get Rolling Stone magazine. If you've got an iPad, go to the Zinio app, Z-I-N-I-O, download it and listen to it. It's a great app. Uh, it's a, not listen to it. Let me start again. 
Z-I-N-I-O, it's a magazine app. Uh, they've got a few good magazines in there that, you know, it's, and they're fairly inexpensive to, to get each monthly edition. Or I think you can buy like an annual subscription to Rolling Stone via Zinio for like 12 bucks, something and get a monthly edition. Um, or just go online and, and Google Taibi's articles. Uh, you know, they're, they're on Rolling Stone's website. Keep up to date with what's going on. Oh, I should finish, actually, uh, the Goldman Sachs story before I go. Change my mind. Hold on a second. Because there was another article that he had today in Rolling Stone. A new Wall Street investigation is the hammer finally coming down. And he's talking about uh, stated New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, who's really trying to throw criminal charges at Goldman Sachs. Um he says the investigation has the potential to be a mother of all nightmares situation for the banks for a couple of reasons. For one thing, the decision to go after the securitization process is a, is a total prosecutorial bullseye. This is the ugly heart of the wide-scale fraud scheme of the bubble era. Again, the business model during this time was a giant bait-and-switch scam. Sleazy lenders like Countrywide and New Century First created huge masses of bad loans, committing every conceivable kind of fraud to get people into loans, from doctoring income statements with whiteout to phonying FICO scores to engineering fake appraisals. They then moved the bad loans quickly to the big banks, which pooled them and chopped them up. This is the securitization process. Sprinkled hocus-pocus math on them and then sold them to suckers around the world as AAA-rated securities. So um, he uh, thinks that there's a you know a great opportunity here for them to be uh, prosecuted. But, you know, Goldman Sachs has been prosecuted before. They've been charged over the last you know, 20 years with a whole variety of fraud claims. And they normally get get away with it with a slap on the wrist. You know, they would typically make billion dollars of profits in some scam, get charged with being bad guys, and will end up settling for something like $40 million, like nothing compared to the sort of profits that they made. They never have to admit fault or admit uh, to fraud. And they just basically uh, cruise on by, you know. They, their control of the media and the government when everyone forgets and they basically pick themselves up and do it all over again. And they're fucking the planet in the process. That's the thing to remember. They're fucking the U.S. economy and uh, various other global economies. We saw what happened to Greece. We saw what happened in, you know, various uh, uh, European Union countries. You know, the trickle-down effects of their absolutely rapacious greed and fraud affect all of us. Um, so, wow, I've been talking a long time, 46 minutes. That's the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Uh, go and check out some of my old shows on Obama's, uh, uh, investors back at just search, uh, you know, G'day World, uh, Obama podcast. You'll find a few there from 2007. And, uh, what else can I plug? Um, I'm writing a book at the moment about the intersection of science and philosophy, sort of on the third draft. That'll be out soon as an ebook. Um, nothing to do with everything else I talk about in this show, but one of my other interests, as some of you might know. Um, well, that's it. Uh, this is Cameron. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.